Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part five of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. This episode will be all about cancer, cancer metabolism, cancer prevention, and cancer treatment. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease. Together, heart disease and cancer account for almost half of all deaths in the United States. Unlike cardiovascular disease, cancer still kills Americans at almost the exact same rate as it did 50 years ago. So ever since the war on cancer was initiated by Nixon, there's been very little progress in terms of cancer and cancer metabolism and understanding what causes cancer and how we treat cancer. I go into a lot more detail about cancer and cancer metabolism in the Cancer Code, which I highly recommend, uh, Cancer Code by Jason Fung. I made a whole podcast about it if you want to go listen to that one. But because Peter talks about cancer in this episode, I'd also like to talk about cancer. So starting with cancer metabolism, we can't talk about cancer metabolism without talking about Otto Warburg. So in the 1920s, a German physiologist by the name of Otto Warburg discovered that cancer cells had a strangely gluttonous appetite for glucose, devouring it up to 40 times the rate of of healthy tissues. But these cancer cells weren't, quote-unquote, respiring the way normal cells do, consuming oxygen and producing lots of ATP, which is the energy currency of our cells. Rather, these cancer cells appeared to be using a different pathway that cells normally use to produce energy under anaerobic conditions, meaning no oxygen. And we use anaerobic conditions like when we're sprinting, when we run out of oxygen, we produce lactate instead, as this this energy source in in a different pathway. And the strange thing was that these cancer cells were resorting to this inefficient metabolic pathway despite having plenty of oxygen available around them. And this is what we call the Warburg effect. Warburg effect, in essence, is the use of the inefficient anaerobic pathway even in the presence of oxygen. Now, the Warburg effect generates lots of lactate, as I mentioned. And this lactate is a good environment for the cancer cells to grow because lactate is lactic acid. It's an acidic uh, molecule, and this makes the tumor microenvironment less hospitable because of the lower pH or more, more acidic. And it causes generation of a lot of lactic acid and reactive ox- oxygen species. And the point is, normal aerobic cellular respiration, meaning in the presence of oxygen, produces only energy in the form of ATP plus water and carbon dioxide. Now, the Warburg effect, also known as anaerobic glycolysis, or without oxygen, turns the same amount of glucose into a little bit of energy and a whole lot of chemical building blocks. This is why it's called the inefficient pathway, because whenever someone goes through a Warburg effect or uses anaerobic glycolysis or anaerobic respiration, we see that it doesn't produce as much ATP but it's producing a whole lot of chemical building blocks, which are then used to build new cells rapidly. So again, the point of cancer cells is not to have a lot of energy, it's really to divide and spread. That's the whole point of cancer cells. Thus, the Warburg effect is how cancer cells fuel their own proliferation. Now this remains a very controversial view in mainstream cancer uh, centers, but it has gotten harder and harder to ignore the link between cancer and metabolic dysfunction. So metabolic dysfunction being obesity, diabetes, hypertension, things like that. Now, in the 1990s and early 2000s, as the rates of smoking and 
smoking-related cancers declined, there was a new threat that emerged to take the place of tobacco smoke. And of course, I'm mentioning about these different metabolic diseases. Obesity and type 2 diabetes were snowballing into national and even global epidemics. And they also seem to be driving increased risk for many types of cancers, including esophageal, liver, and pancreatic, and much more. Globally, about 12 to 13% of all cancer cases are thought to be attributable to obesity itself. Obesity itself is a strong association with, with 13 different types of cancers, including pancreatic, esophageal, renal, ovarian, breast cancer, and even multiple myeloma. Type 2 diabetes also increases the risk of certain cancers by as much as double in some cases, like pancreatic and endometrial cancers. And extreme obesity, so people with BMI greater than 40, is associated with a 52% greater risk of death from all cancers in men and 62% in, in women. So there's this clear association between obesity and diabetes with cancer. Peter suspects that the association between obesity and diabetes and cancer is primarily driven by inflammation and also growth factors like insulin. So this chronic inflammation, remember fat cells, they secrete adipokines, certain inflammatory markers, and this chronic inflammation really helps create an environment that could induce cells to become cancerous. And it also contributes to insulin resistance. So obesity contributing to insulin resistance, causing insulin levels to creep upwards. As we'll see shortly, Insulin itself is a really bad actor in cancer metabolism. So there's so much insulin, it's, it's really just, in essence, a growth factor. So, so much insulin, so much mTOR activity, so much growth, and this is really fueling the cancer. Now, this insight of high insulin levels and high glucose levels came in courtesy by another researcher by the name of Lewis, Lou Cantley. He and his colleagues discovered an enzyme or a family of enzymes called PI3 kinases or PI3K that played a major role in fueling the Warburg effect by speeding up glucose uptake into the cell. So in effect, to make you guys understand a little bit better, PI3 kinase helps the, open the gate in the cell wall, allowing glucose to flood into the, into the cell to fuel its growth. So cancer cells possess specific mutations that turn up this PI3 kinase. So in essence, more glucose going into the cell, allowing more energy and more cells to be rapidly dividing. And it also shuts down the tumor suppressor genes like P10. P-T-E-N, it's a tumor suppressor gene. When PI3 kinase is activated by things like insulin and IGF, the insulin-like insulin -like growth factor, the cell is able to devour glucose at a greater rate to fuel its growth. Thus, insulin really acts as a kind of cancer enabler, accelerating its growth. This in turn suggests that metabolic therapies, including dietary manipulation, that lowers insulin levels could potentially help slow growth, the growth of cancer and also reduce cancer risks. There's already evidence that tinkering with metabolism can really affect cancer rates. As we've seen Different lab animals who have undergone CR, calorie restriction diets, tend to die from cancer at a far lower rate than control animals on an ad libitum or all-you-can-eat diet. So eating less appears to give them some degree of protection. The same may hold true in humans. So one study of 
calorie restriction in humans found that limiting calorie intake directly turns down the PI3 kinase-associated pathway. And this, again, could be a, a potential therapeutic when we try to prevent cancer and possibly even treat cancer. And now we talk about the these new treatments really spearheaded by Lou Cantley. He discovered the discovery of this PI3 kinase pathway led to the development of a whole class of drugs that actually target cancer metabolism. And these are the PI3 kinase inhibitors. And PI3 kinase inhibitors have been approved by the FDA for certain relapsed leukemias and also lymphomas, and also also approved in 2019 for uh, breast cancers as well. But they haven't seemed to work as well as predicted based on PI3 kinase prominent role in the growth pathway of cancer cells. Also, the problem with PI3 kinase is that they had an annoying side effect of actually raising your blood glucose levels, which in turn provoked an increase in insulin and IGF. And also, the cells tried to work around the PI3 kinase inhibition because of this. And this is the very thing that we were avoiding. So the PI3 kinase, again, side effect is hyperglycemia, more insulin, more cancer fuel growth. That was the problem. And he puts here, the problem with PI3 kinase inhibitors, he explained, is that by turning down the insulin-related PI3 kinase pathway, they actually ended up raising insulin and glucose levels. Because glucose is blocked from entering the cell, more of it is really staying around in the bloodstream. And of course, this is the problem. And the body thinks that it needs to produce more insulin to get rid of all that glucose. So it's a kind of vicious cycle. And so Luke Hanley was drawing on a napkin, and he was really thinking about a study. The study found, a, found that a combination of a ketogenic diet and a PI3 kinase inhib- inhibitor improved the responses to treatments of mice that had been implanted with certain cancer, cancerous tumors. So the results are important because they show not only that cancer's metabolism is a valid target for therapy, but that a patient's metabolic state can affect the efficacy of a drug. And again, there's a lot of work by Walter Longo out of USC showing how his fasting mimicking diet is actually showing great improvement in the the chemotherapy, the patients undergoing chemotherapy, their tolerance. And, you know, this is something you should read about in the Longevity Diet by Walter Longo. I also did a podcast on that if you want to really check that out more into Walter Longo's work. But kind of moving ahead, it's all about stacking different therapies. So we want to stack potentially this ketogenic Mediterranean diet with PI3 kinase. And by stacking different therapies, for example, a combination of PI3 kinase with a ketogenic diet, we can attack cancer on multiple fronts while also minimizing the likelihood of cancer developing resistance to any single treatment. And this kind of spearheads our way to the next section, which is the promise of immunotherapy. So immunotherapy is the idea of using your own immune system, using any therapy that tries to boost or harness the patient's immune system to fight an infection or any other condition. Like a, like a vaccine, it's similar to a vaccine. The problem with trying to treat cancer this way is that while cancer cells are abnormal and dangerous, they are technically still our own cells, and they have cleverly really evolved to hide from our immune system, and specifically our T cells, which help kill the cancer. 
And a lot of this work was done by Steve Rosenberg. But Rosenberg wasn't the first person to harness the immune system against cancer. All the way back in the late 19th century, a Harvard-trained surgeon by the name Will Coley had noticed that a patient with a serious tumor had been really miraculously cured, cured apparently as a result of a major post-surgical infection. So this patient had a really bad cancer, and he had a surgery, and from that surgery he got an infection. But that infection helped somehow clear the cancer. So Coley began experimenting with bacterial inoculations that he hoped would trigger, trigger a similar immune response in other patients. And this is where Rosenberg really got the idea. How can we use our own immune system to kill off these cancer cells? So Rosenberg spent many years experimenting with interleukin-2. So interleukin is a cytokine that helps activate our T cells. And finally, in 1984, a late-stage melanoma patient named Linda Taylor was put into remission by high-dose IL-2 alone. Now, this was a huge turning point in immunotherapy because it showed that our immune system could fight off cancer. But the failures still outnumbered the success as high-dose high IL-2 seemed to be effective only against certain types of cancers like melanoma and also renal cell carcinomas, and only in 10-20% to 20 of patients with these two types of cancers. So it's very specific for these types of cancers, and it's still not super effective or not as effective as we'd like. So it took many more years and several iterations, but Rosenberg and his team adapted a technique that he had been that had been developed in Israel that involved T cells from a patient's blood. So we take, t we take T cells from a patient's blood. Then we use genetic engineering to add antigen receptors that were specifically targeted to the patient's tumor. And this, of course, is called the CAR-T, chimeric antigen receptor T cells. And these modified T cells could be multiplied in the lab and then infused back into the patient. So this is the idea of CAR-T. So CAR-T, these chimeric antigen receptors, they match the tumor antigen. They're able to recognize the tumor antigen and destroy that. So in 2010, Rosenberg and his team reported their first success with a CAR-T treatment in a patient with advanced follicular, follicular lymphoma who had undergone multiple rounds of conventional treatment. And in 2017, the first two CAR-T-based treatments were approved by the FDA, one for adult lymphoma and another for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, which is the most common cancer in children. As elegant as they are, however, CAR-T treatments have proven successful only against, again, one specific type of cancer, like B-cell lymphomas. So B-cell lymphomas express this molecule called CD19 on the surface, and it's the target for CAR-T cells to really zero in and kill them. Now, more than a decade later, a handful of immunotherapy-based cancer drugs have been approved. In addition to CAR-T, there's also a class of medications called checkpoint inhibitors. And checkpoint inhibitors were really really brought up by another researcher by the name of James Allison. Again, I speak a lot more about this in detail in the Cancer Code, which I recommend. I did a podcast much earlier, and I recommend listening to that podcast. But, And I, I talk about similar things in those previous podcasts. But again, he mentions it here, James Allison. 
James Allison had been working on immunotherapy for just as long as Steve Rosenberg. And James Allison really figured out how cancer cells hide from the immune system and how they really hide it, hide from our immune system using the these checkpoints that are normally able to regulate our T cells and keep them from going overboard and attacking our normal cells. So the way it works is, these are the CTLA-4 inhibitors, by the way. So Allison found that if you block specific checkpoints, particularly one called CTLA-4, you effectively outed or unmasked the cancer cells and the T cells would destroy them. So again, CTLA-4, it's an inhibition signal. CTLA-4 interacts with another molecule called CD80 and prevents CD80 from interacting with another molecule called CD28. And this prevents T-cell activation normally. So when CD80 binds with 28, it prevents T-cell activation. If you inhibit CTLA-4, you get no interaction of CD80 with CD28. And again, you, as he puts it, effectively unmask the cancer cells and allow your T-cells to really destroy them. So that's in a very simplified way how it works. And in 2018, because of this discovery of CTLA-4, Allison shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Japanese scientists named Tasuku Honjo for the work on a different checkpoint inhibitor. These are the PD-1s, or Program Death 1 checkpoints inhibitors. And you may be familiar with some of these drugs like ipilimumab or pembrolizumab. These are these are CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibitors. So Keytruda is a is pembrolizumab, it's a PD-1 inhibitor. Ipilimumab is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. Of course, these cancer names all have very complicated all these cancer drugs have very compl- complicated names, but the point is is that they are monoclonal antibodies. They are checkpoint inhibitors and help our own immune system fight off cancer cells. And just really quickly on this PD-1 inhibitors because I love mechanisms. The interaction of a PD-1 ligand on a tumor cell with a PD-1 on a T cell, it helps reduce T cell function signals and also prevents our immune system from activation. So by inhibiting PD-1, we basically get more activation of our T cells on the cancer cells. So that's, that's sort of how it works. And all Nobel Prizes are very impressive, but Peter's kind of biased towards the Nobel Prize of the PD-1 inhibitors because these checkpoint inhibitors really helped uh, Jimmy Carter. He, he used Keytruda, again, this PD-1 inhibitor for metastatic, metastatic melanoma in 2015. So just to move forward a little bit more, more future therapies, there's one called adoptive cell therapy or ACT. So adoptive cell therapy is a class of immunotherapy whereby supplemental T cells are transferred into a patient, like adding reinforcements to the army to bolster their ability to fight their own tumors. These T cells have been genetically programmed with antigens specifically targeted at the, at the patient's individual tumor type. So it's kind of similar to CAR T cell therapy, 
but with a much, much broader in scope. So as cancer cells grow, it quickly outruns the immune system's ability to detect and kill it. There simply aren't enough T cells to do the job, particularly when cancer reaches a certain point of clinical detection. So the idea behind ACT is basically to overwhelm the cancer with a huge number of targeted T cells, like supplementing an army with a brigade of trained assassins. So that's the sort of wrap up of checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy. I think we're on the forefront on the war of cancer. I think we're really headed in a certain direction with this immunotherapy. And that's the whole problem of chemotherapy in general is how can we can kill our cancer cells, but not our own cells. So when we hone in on these antigens on, on cancer cells and can detect them and just kill them off, that's where we're going to win the war on cancer. Of course, we can't talk about cancer without talking about early detection. The final and perhaps most important tool in our anti-cancer arsenal is early aggressive screening. Now, this remains a controversial topic, but the evidence is overwhelming that catching cancer early is almost always net beneficial. Now, let's take a look at colon cancer as an example. A patient with metastatic colon cancer, which means that the cancer has spread to pass out of the colon and into other parts of the body, will typically use a combination of three drugs. It's called the full fox therapy. Now, this treatment yields a median survival of about 31.5 months. If a patient undergoes successful surgery for stage 3 colon cancer, which means that all the cancer was removed and there was no spread to other organs, the follow-up treatment is the exact same. They still use full FOX therapy. But in this scenario, fully 75.8% of these patients will survive for another 6 years compared to the 31.5 months. Now, this six years is more than twice as long as the median survival for metastatic patients. And 67% of them will still be alive 10 years after the surgery. So this is a very impressive difference. So what explains the difference between someone with metastatic cancer who gets treatment with fall flocks versus someone with stage 3 cancer who gets you know, surgical resection with fall flocks? The difference really has to do with the overall burden of cancer cells in each patient. In advanced metastatic cancer, there are tens if not hundreds of billion of cancer cells in need of treatment. In less advanced cancers, while there's undoubtedly still millions if not billions of cancer cells, the tumor burden is still going to be a lot less, and the far lower population means they will have fewer mutations and thus less resistance to treatment. So it's all about early detection. And again, there's screening methods for these cancers. And as a doctor, I recommend you guys go for your screening. So if you are 45 and you still haven't gotten, if you're 45 or older and still haven't got a colonoscopy, I recommend go getting a colonoscopy. If you're a woman, make sure you get your mammogram and pap smear. If you smoke cigarettes, make sure to get some sort of imaging of your lung to check for lung cancer. This is just very basic. A lot of these are preventable. Reduce your risk of obesity, reduce your risk of met any type of metabolic syndrome, and you'll reduce your risk of cancer. There's also one more treatment he calls, he talks about liquid biopsies in here. Liquid biopsies are the presence of, we can help detect cancer in the blood, and it's really used for detecting the recurrence of cancer. 
along with someone who who had cancer and were kind of screening or were screening for patients with who are otherwise healthy and also the detection of recurrent cancers that's the that's the main two indications of these liquid biopsies and a lot of this work was by Max Dean which is one of Peter's med school classmates who's now a oncology professor at Stanford he's really pushing a lot of this stuff so Max and his colleagues came up with a whole different method and if you think about it because cancer cells are growing constantly they tend to shed a lot of cellular matter in including uh bits of like tumor DNA into circulation and then we can use these bits of tumor DNA it's called cell free DNA to possibly screen for to see if there's cancer in the blood that's the whole point of this this cell cell DNA and now there's companies out there like Grail I mentioned in my life force podcast with Peter Diamandis and Tony Robbins, the, the, the company called Grail, who's really leading the charge with this assay. Now, the Grail test looks at methylation patterns on cell-free DNA, and using very high throughput screening and a massive AI engine, the, this gallery test can really glean really important information like, is cancer present, and if so, where it is, and from what part of the body did it most likely originate? So again, we're on the cutting edge of cancer treatment, this grail test, looking at methylation patterns. But again, nothing beats prevention. If I were to leave with two pieces of advice right now, the first would be get screened for cancer. And the second is prevention. Reduce your weight, reduce obesity, exercise, get, good, nice, get enough sleep. All this stuff important for cancer prevention. And don't smoke, obviously. So I'm running a little long here. I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you tune in next time. Next episode, I'll be talking about Alzheimer's and all types of different neurodegenerative diseases. So make sure to tune in for that. So thank you for listening. Hope you learned something and tune in next time.